Now remain standing for our gospel lesson and also our sermon text from John 6. Give your ear to the gospel of God. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was, such, there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the, the boat was at the land where they were going. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help us through your word today to trust you more deeply and to know who your son is. We need your Holy Spirit for this. And we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You can open your Bibles or keep your Bibles open to the sixth, sixth chapter of John. Today we'll look the first part. I gave you an outline for the first 21 verses, which is really one section. In a sense, the entire chapter is one section. Um, and then if, if we want to have subsections, the first 21 verses. But we are going to take two weeks to go through, and we'll just get through verse 13 
today, but you can see where we're going in your outline and perhaps what the main theme is, main idea of this passage is. Now, John tells us why he took the time to write his gospel. John's purpose statement, you may remember, is toward the end of the book. At the end of chapter 20 and verse 31, says, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Now in chapter 1, John pulled back the veil of eternity, and he revealed the existence of Jesus before time began. In the beginning, Jesus was with God. In fact, He was God. The right time... He became human, and He lived among us on earth, John 1.14. And in chapters 2-5, to Jesus the God-man demonstrates His godness in various ways, by His words, by His actions, His mighty deeds, by changing water into wine, by declaring His mission to save the whole world as Yahweh promised to do in the Old Testament, by exercising His authority over the temple, something only God could do, by exposing the secrets of people's hearts, by healing the nobleman's son who was 20 miles away, by healing the lame man at the pool of Bethesda whose body had been withered for 38 years. And finally in chapter 5, by declaring and proving His divine nature, His divine authority to the Pharisees. And now we come to chapter 6. And by this time, Jesus' ministry is in full swing. The people are gathering in large crowds to see Jesus, to hear Him, to receive from Him, to see Jesus and His miracles. They're coming on the surface because they want to follow Jesus. But, Did any of these people see Jesus for who He was? Did they really know Him? Did they really want to follow Him? Did even His disciples recognize Him as the great and powerful God for whom nothing is impossible? Now the answer is no, as we'll see. They did not grasp His identity yet. They saw Jesus as the prophet. They want to make Him the king the king that Israel had been waiting on, but they didn't realize that the prophet and king that God had sent them was in fact Jesus, God in the flesh. This Jesus is not just the Messiah, not just the king, not just the prophet. He is God Almighty. Their lack of understanding, which stemmed from their lack of faith, Their lack of faith and understanding were highlighted when they were tested with these two back-to-back impossibilities in John 6, 1-21. The first test was how to feed over 5,000 people with nothing at first and then just five loaves and two fish. The second test is how to cross an uncrossable sea in the midst of a gale-force wind in the middle of a storm. Now, sooner or later, like the disciples, you'll face a test that human reason declares 
impossible or nearly impossible. A situation that is so difficult, so challenging, so hopeless, it seems, that you can find no reasonable way, no reasonable way to be optimistic. Maybe, you be, maybe you're going through one of those right now, one of those tests. This passage from John 6 is designed to strengthen the faith of the people of God. To strengthen your faith in Jesus, your Savior and your God. So that you can pass His tests. The purpose of John 6, 1-21 is to deepen your trust in the God-man, Jesus Christ. To help you know who He is. So that you can worship Him and follow Him rightly. And so you need to know that for Him, nothing is impossible. You need to know that Jesus, the God-man, is in absolute control of everything and every circumstance all the time. When the angel told Mary that she was going to give birth to the Son of God, she asked him, how can this be since I do not know a man? She, she wasn't faltering in her faith. She was asking an honest question. And the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, also has conceived a son in her old age. She's also been, she, she's also conceived impossibly. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. And the last thing the angel says before he leaves, one more thing before he departs, for with God, nothing will be impossible. This is similar to what the Lord told Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis 18, you may remember that Sarah laughed in unbelief when God told them that she was going to have a child by Abraham in her old age. Like Elizabeth, Sarah was barren. And her childbearing days were long gone. The Lord knew Sarah had laughed in unbelief. And so he said, why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah did not believe that. She didn't believe that with God, nothing is impossible. But Mary did. When the angel told Mary what was going to happen and how it was going to happen, while she was still a virgin, she said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. That's a response of faith. When God tells us things, puts us in situations, leads us to do things that don't seem possible to us. So John 6, 1-21 teaches you to respond like Mary when God puts you through tests that are designed to stretch you and to grow you, to expand your faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in fact, God in the flesh. So before we get into the text, I want you to think of a difficult situation in your life, now or in the past, or one that you know is coming. A situation that seems desperately difficult. It may be a disappointment or a hardship that is testing your faith, pushing the limits of your faith. Maybe your fault, maybe someone else's fault, maybe you're tempted to 
blame God. I think it's his fault after all. He could have prevented it. It may be an ongoing trial that you've stopped giving to God. You've stopped casting it onto Jesus. You don't really see how God could be in this one. You struggle to believe that God could ever bring resolution. Your doubts and your fears have taken over and they've almost completely crowded out faith. Maybe an impossible financial burden. May be a relationship or a friendship. May be a recurring storm in your home in your home. It may be the realization that you are going to miss out on certain blessings in this life. It may be that God has put on your plate more than you think you can handle. It may be the sense that God has sent you out into some kind of storm and abandoned you there. Whatever impossible test God is putting you through, Jesus reminds you in John 6 of His power, His provision, and His presence. His power, provision, and presence. His power is made perfect in your weakness. His provision is more than enough for you. And His presence in the storm is only seen through eyes of faith. Verse 1 says that after these things, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee. It's also called the Sea of Tiberias. Some people say it's not another name for the Sea of Galilee, but it's the place where they left from. Either way, Tiberias is mentioned as a place marker or as another name for the sea. And after these things does not mean immediately after these things. Chapter 5 takes place during one of the Jewish feasts. You may remember, John doesn't tell us which one, but in John 5, 1, it says there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Scholars debate about which feast this was. Some say, Passover the year before, chapter 6. Some say Purim. Chapter 6 also takes place during a feast, and it tells us which one, the feast of Passover. Look at verse 4. Now Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. So we can pretty safely say that the feast in chapter 5, verse 1, and the feast in chapter 6, verse 4, were two different feasts. And this means that the events in chapter 5 and the events in chapter 6 were separated by at least several weeks. If the feast in chapter 5 was Passover, it means that the events in chapter 6 happened almost about a year later. Maybe less if it was a different feast. Verse 2 says that a great multitude of people followed Jesus. They'd been hearing about Him. They wanted to see Him. And it tells us why they followed Him. Look at verse 2. They followed him because of his signs. So it's not looking good for this great multitude, is it? What do you know about people who believe in Jesus because of his signs? John covered this back in chapter 2. And flip back a few pages to chapter 2 in John and look at verse 23. It says, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, a different Passover yet, During the feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs which He did. But, but, 
Jesus did not commit himself to them. He did not entrust himself to them, it says, because he knew all men. He knew what was in their heart, what was inside of them. And it wasn't true faith. They loved his miracles, but they didn't love him. They wanted his mighty works, but they didn't want him. They wanted his signs, but they didn't want the great thing that the signs signified. They wanted a genie, but they did not want Jesus. So John 6, 2 is not a good sign. Verse 3, and Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus took his disciples to a deserted place so that they could rest. The disciples had just gotten back from preaching the gospel and healing people throughout Israel. Jesus sent them out two by two, you remember. And now they were eager, having come back, to spend time with Jesus and to tell him everything that had happened, the other gospels say. And they wanted to rest, it says. But God had different plans for them. Verse 5 says, Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Verse 6 is an important, is an important window into how Jesus relates to his people, how he trains us. Notice that verse 6 doesn't say that Jesus said this to Philip to mock him, to exasperate him, to belittle him, to embarrass him in front of the other 11. No, Jesus said it to Philip to test him, to stretch Philip. He wanted to develop a part in Philip's faith that needed to be developed. Philip's small faith needed to be tested so that it could expand and become bigger. That's why Jesus tests us. That's why he tests you. To transform our little faith into great faith. That's the purpose behind all the tests and trials that God puts you through in his perfect will. He wants to take the current state of your faith and turn it into something deeper and richer wider, firmer, bigger. So he tests you. James 1.3 says that the testing of your faith produces perseverance or steadfastness. That's why you can count it all joy when you face trials because Jesus sends you these trials. He is testing your faith in order to produce in you steadfastness of faith perseverance of faith. And this steadfastness, Jesus James says, leads you to more maturity and more completeness in Christ so that you are lacking nothing, James says. So do you want to be a Christian who is steadfast, firm, persevering, complete, mature, lacking nothing, If so, then count it all joy when Jesus tests you, when he sends you trials of various kinds. 1 Peter 1.7 says something similar. 
you rejoice in this, though now for a short time you have had to struggle in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now in this passage, Peter says that our faith is more precious than gold, which is refined in the fire, he says in this verse. His point is that, is that if we care about gold enough to purify it in fire, then we can expect God to purify our faith through fire. Your faith is more precious to God than all the gold in the world. The Christian life is a process of removing all the dross from your faith. And God removes the dross by testing you, by giving you a mission when you want to rest on a mountain. He sends every believer the tests that they need. He designs certain tests for certain people. He has designed your tests specifically for you. Now you might be thinking, why do I always get the same test? Or why have I been getting the same test for years or decades now? Well, I don't know for sure. It may be because that you have, you've not learned the lesson. The test has not yet produced the faith and steadfastness and maturity and genuineness that God wants. Or maybe it's doing its work and God just wants more. But God wants your faith to grow more than you want your faith to grow. His standards for your maturity are higher than your standards for your maturity. And that's where the rub is, right? The last part of verse 6 in John 6 says that Jesus knew all along what he was intending to do. Philip didn't know what Jesus planned. But Jesus did. And when Jesus tests you, he never tells you what he's going to do. How it's going to turn out. If he did, it wouldn't be a test, would it? But he always knows exactly what he's going to do. He's ever aware, ever aware of how it will end exactly and what the best possible outcome is for you. So when Jesus tests you, when his divine plan for your life creates in your heart and mind uncertainty about what's going on and what he's up to or discomfort about what he's calling you to do, prodding you to do. The proper response is to tell him, Lord, you know better than I do why you are testing me, why you are stretching me, why you are pushing me, why you are making me wait for this thing, why you're not giving me the answers to my questions, why you're not explaining all the details of the situation, why you have put me in this impossible situation, why you keep leading me to do things that are too difficult for me. You know I am in the midst of this. Please develop all that needs to be developed in me. Please refine my faith through this so that I can handle this and see this from your perspective instead of mine. That's the prayer of faith. That's the response that God is looking for. 
You see, Philip's problem, and the whole, the disciples' problem, was that he was looking at this from his own narrow perspective instead of from the Lord's. Philip did not understand the power of Jesus. He didn't know what Jesus was capable of. Many of the tests that Jesus puts you through are to teach you to look at the world, to look at your life, to look at God through His eyes instead of yours. If you're wondering why God keeps putting you through the same test, consider that it might be because might be because you're still viewing the whole situation, the whole problem from a merely human point of view. You're still failing to see it from God's perspective. Faith is seeing things God's way. Faith is thinking God's thoughts after Him rather than projecting our thoughts onto Him. Faith is learning to think God's thoughts after Him rather than projecting our thoughts onto Him. And we know that Philip was not seeing the situation through the eyes of faith because he says to Jesus in verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have even a little. 200 denarii is the equivalent to about eight months' wages for a laborer. Philip's point is that even eight months' wages would only buy enough for each person to have a bite or two, not even a little, he says. And you can notice that Philip's answer doesn't actually answer the question. Jesus asks, where? Where shall we buy the bread? Where? Where, we, where will we go, Philip? But that's not the question Philip answered. His response is to tell Jesus that it's impossible to buy food for all these people. Even if we had that kind of money, it wouldn't actually feed them. And Philip's answer betrays that he can only think at the level of the marketplace, the level of natural, the natural world, natural reasoning. He's not thinking spiritually. And Jesus wants him to. That's the nature of of the test. But Philip's a bean counter and a statistical pessimist. He analyzes everything on the basis of what is certain. Now, of course, it's not wrong to be practical. We need practical people in our church, in our families, in our world. But Philip is the kind of guy who decides things, it seems, with a calculator. He looked at things through the lens of the external evidence instead of through the lens of faith. Philip is the one you remember who made the faithless statement to Jesus in the upper room in John 14. He said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and that is enough for us. Just show us the Father and and I promise that'll be enough. This is an astounding statement because what Philip is saying is that Jesus is not enough. You see, faith drives people like Philip crazy. When they're faced with a difficulty, they always revert back to what is humanly possible. What we can see happening with our eyeballs, 
in our brains. And they make decisions on that basis. Philip required visual evidence. This was the same mentality that the ten spies had when they came back from spying out the land of Canaan. The ten fearful and doubtful spies told Israel when they got back, oh no, we can't go into that land. Those guys are huge. They've got giants everywhere, and we're like grasshoppers to them. Trying to conquer them would be suicide. No doubt about it. The ten spies had done the math. The evidence was in, and God's power and presence were not enough. His promise to provide for them was not enough. People like Philip and the ten spies are notorious for being experts on what will not work. Reminds me of a conversation I had with one of my older sons when he was little. He was struggling to be joyful and content. So I said to him, somewhat playfully, son, you've got to learn to look on the bright side. He responded with conviction. I try, but I never get a chance to. And people like Philip and the ten spies are always more than willing, the first chance they get, to trust in God with all their heart and to lean not on their own understanding. The, promise, the problem is they never get a chance to. It's never the right time to stop calculating and to trust in God's power and provision. It's a good thing David didn't use a calculator when he faced Goliath. Can you imagine? Lord, it's, he's nearly 10 feet tall. He weighs at least three or four times what I weigh. If he fell on me, he would crush me, kill me instantly. Plus, look at all his armor and weaponry. Lord, I, th I think he got the wrong guy. Like Philip and the ten spies, some of us need to get rid of our calculators and become more like David. Now, Andrew's response in verse 9 is not much better. John is really highlighting the lack of faith throughout this, these 21 verses, really. And we know from the other Gospels that Jesus told his disciples to go look for loaves of bread in the crowd of people. So Andrew didn't go looking on his own. We might want to give him credit if he had, okay. At least he's going out by faith. Well, Jesus had to send them out, we know, from the previous Gospels. And in verse 9, Andrew tells Jesus, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, and we wish he would just stop right there. That would have been a good, solid, faith-filled answer. Here, Jesus, I did what you said. Didn't understand it, but I did what you said. I found a boy with five loaves and two fish. It's all I've got. It's all I could find. You've got it from here. I'll just see what you're going to do. We would have liked to see Andrew maybe tell the boy, this little boy that he brought with him back to Jesus, son, you'll be glad you donated your sack lunch to this man, Jesus. I know it seems strange, uh, to be honest. I'm not sure I know exactly what's going on here, what's going to happen, 
but Jesus told us to do this, and you can trust him, I'm certain you'll be amazed at what happens next. But that's not what happens. Instead, after he reports back to Jesus about the lad, the five loaves, and the fish, Andrew gives his own commentary in the form of a pessimistic question. But how far will these go among so many people? Andrew's faith doesn't seem much better than Philip's. He couldn't see past the resources that he had in his hand, that he could see with his eyes. He assumed that the solution to the problem lay merely in natural resources. The other ten disciples don't show any evidence of having more faith than these two. Their problem was that they underestimated their wealth. They had seen water turned into wine, a miracle similar to the one that they needed in this situation. Jesus had healed the nobleman's son from 20 miles away, and the lame man after 38 years. Why didn't they understand what Christ could do in this situation? Why weren't they waiting expectantly? It was because they had a defective view of Christ. In fact, we learn from the other Gospels that even after this happened, even after they saw the miracle that we just read about, their hearts were still hard, Mark says. And this was because they had a defective view of Jesus Christ. That was their problem, and it's the root of our problem, all of our problems. A flawed view of of who Jesus is and what he can do. It's been said that men are like the gods they worship. We conduct our lives according to the concept of the God we worship. That was the difference between David and the rest of Israel. During David's time, Israel had rejected God as their king, and they wanted a king like all the other nations. So they chose Saul, the tallest man in the kingdom. They chose a giant to be their king. And then later, because of their defective view of God, they cowered before the giant Goliath. Then along came David, a young man who did not have a defective view of God. When he saw Israel being defeated by Goliath, in words at least, he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And then when David faced Goliath, he told him, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. Well, that's quite a lot, and he's huge. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You see, men are like the concept of the gods they serve. What was David's concept of the God he served? What is your concept of the God that you worship? It's possible to come to church every week and to say the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed and to sing the hymns to believe all the right doctrines of our great God, 
and yet get into the fray and discover that your actual concept of God is something far weaker than the words that you say and hear and sing every week. When you're in the fray, when you're in the fight, when you're going through a test, you need a concept of Christ that is consistent with the Christ revealed in Scripture. There's nothing more important to you in your Christian walk than a correct understanding of who Jesus is, who your Lord and your God and your Savior is. Verse 10 says that Jesus made everyone sit down on the grass. The total number of the people, it says, was of the men were 5,000, and we know that there were women and children there from the other Gospels. There could have been as many as 10,000. Some have said upwards of 20,000 people there. We don't know for sure. Verse 11 says that Jesus gave thanks for the boys' sack lunch, and then he started distributing it to the disciples, and then they to the people. The end of verse 11 says that everyone had as much as they wanted. Jesus provided far more than the small amount that the 200 denarii would have been insufficient to buy. Just as the bread that Jesus multiplied far outstripped that small amount that the 200 denarii would have failed to supply, so also the true bread of heaven who gives life to the world far outstrips the manna in the desert, as we will see later in John 6. Verse 12 says that everyone got filled up. Jesus satisfied every person there. All had enough provision. And this ample provision is a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31.14 where the Lord says, my people will be filled with my bounty. We see in verse 13 that after everyone has had their fill, there's more left over at the end than there was to begin with. There were only five barley loaves to begin with, but the disciples gathered 12 baskets that were full of leftover bread. Jesus provided the disciples their bread for the following day, their daily bread. John is the only gospel writer who tells us that the bread was barley. Barley was the cheapest of all breads. Barley was the poor man's bread. And the Jews later referred to barley as the food of beasts. Jesus' use of barley showed his disciples, and it shows us, it reminds us, that no matter what we have, even the tiniest, most menial, most insignificant thing, if you give it to Jesus in faith, he can use it. Because it's really about his power, not what we have to offer anyway. As the old song puts it, little is much when God is in it. One of the verses of that song says, Does the place you're called to labor seem so small and little known? It is great if God is in it, and he'll not forget his own. 
Little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. Sometimes we feel like Philip or Andrew, and we want, we want to tell God, at least we think in our own minds, Lord, I've got it all calculated out. I've thought it through. I've consulted the authorities, and there's nothing I can do. It's harder to give God our weaknesses than it is our strengths. It's hard, it's hard to settle for that. Even though Paul tells us that when we are weak, then we are strong. We enjoy giving God the things that we're good at, offering them to him, and perhaps other people will see as well. But God does not say that his power is made known in our strengths, in our talents, in our gifts that come so naturally to us. He says that his power is made known in our weakness. When I am weak, then I am strong. So do you believe Jesus is enough? Or, or do you think he needs your keen mind and your organizational skills and your hard work ethic? Is Jesus enough for your impossible situation? Or are you hopeless because you can't work out how it could ever be a good situation? Nothing much in your life can happen until you believe that Jesus is all you have and all you need. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Do you believe that your nothing plus Jesus equals everything? When you do, when you have that kind of faith, you will find that you have everything and you can do everything. His divine power will give you everything you need for life and godliness, as Peter says. And he will give you the strength to do all the things that he's called you to do. But it's only when you are resting in him. Rest is faith. Your weakness plus Jesus equals power. Your lack of provision plus Jesus equals more than enough provision. Your nothing plus Jesus equals everything. Let's pray. Father, we believe in you. We trust in your son. But help our unbelief. Strengthen our faith and do what you must. Test as you will so that our faith is strengthened, so that our faith grows, so that we are willing to become weak and to not know everything that you know and to rest in you and to trust you and to know what you are capable of. We need help for this. We need help by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.